Planning for Tomorrow's Environment, produced by Content with Purpose in partnership with the Royal Town Planning Institute. Our response to the climate and ecological crisis requires heaps of innovation. We need to transform entire industries, reskill the workforce, and create new jobs. That's one huge challenge, but one giant opportunity. So how does this affect you and your sector? Content with Purpose partners with professional member associations and trade bodies to delve into the future of their industries, asking the tough questions and showcasing the innovation propelling our net zero ambitions. Subscribe to this podcast to learn how the professionals in those industries are contributing towards our collective efforts to reach net zero and a more sustainable and prosperous future. Welcome to Planning for Tomorrow's Environment, the RTPI and Content with Purpose podcast that seeks to explore the vital role that planners can play in tackling climate change and paving the way to a sustainable, viable and vibrant future. This episode focuses on global lessons. Now, global warming and climate change is, of course, by definition a global problem and the built environment generates some 40% of global CO2 emissions. So planners really do need to have a significant part to play in helping countries achieve their net zero ambitions. And while the UK occupies just a small part of the planet's surface, it is also a nation that punches pretty hard in terms of global political clout. So people in many parts of the developing world indeed look to the UK for leadership and help in their journey to net zero and to coping with the impacts of climate change. So are we actually living up to those expectations. How good is the UK, in fact, at actually learning lessons from abroad? Does the UK's current planning process actually help or hinder achieving any of those aims? Well, to help answer those questions, we're joined by Kelly Moore, who's Secretary General of the Commonwealth Association of Planners, and Simon Davoudi, who's the Chair of Town Planning and Co-Director of the Newcastle University Centre for Researching Cities. Kelly, perhaps if I could come to you first, and you're actually in Saskatchewan in Canada, aren't you? I sure am. Yeah, it's about minus 40 here today. It's very cold. (laughs) That is seriously cold, isn't it? Right, Okay. well, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do, just to give give us a bit of context. Yeah, absolutely, Rob. Well, thanks so much uh, for having me into the Royal Town Planning Institute um, for extending out the invitation. I think this is uh, um, a neat format to have the podcast and the accessibility of that. And um, I know our listeners across the Commonwealth will be very interested to to learn from this series as well. Um, So a little bit about me. I am the Voluntary Secretary General of the Commonwealth Association of Planners. I've been in this role since May of 2021. So got about a coming up to my uh, two years. Um, During the day, I am am a registered professional planner. I work with the government of Saskatchewan as a um, with in a variety of roles, kind of overseeing some of our infrastructure projects and so on. Um, But as a secretary general, we have responsibility um, to our uh, 30 members across the Commonwealth um, from areas from the UK. So the Royal Town Planning Institute, all the members are members of Commonwealth uh, Association of Planners, um, all the way to areas like in Rwanda, um, to Pakistan, you know, to Canada, where I'm based. Um, And we have uh, approximately 40,000 members which are comprised of the different um, national institutes. And we work on a number of projects, which I'll touch on through the seri- you know, process of this podcast as we go forward. Absolutely. So, I mean, there's a pretty broad spread of, of nations around the world there. How well is planning actually being used in different parts of the world as, as part of this uh, combating climate change project? 
That's a great question. Actually, our mandate is to advance the planning profession uh, globally. And uh, because there are differences um, in awareness of the importance of planning in um, in certainly sustainable communities, um, sustainable development and responding to climate change. So in areas like um, uh, Canada or Australia or, of course, the UK, um, uh, we see um, really developed planning systems um, that are actively advancing work around um, the sustainable development goals from the UN and measurements at the national level and kind of cascading down to the state and the provincial levels and so on. Um, in other areas, um, in some portions of the continent of Af Africa, we see some national planning policies in place that are also trying to respond, um, like Kenya, for example, um, where they do have a national policy framework, but you don't see maybe on the ground um, regulations in the same way, building codes that require um, uh, you know, in insulating or heat barriers or cooling barriers or uh, landscape or preservation of the biodiversity of the ecosystem. So it's mm -hmm. a real um, uh, patchwork, if you will, yeah. of, of, of commitment, not just between the global north and the global south, but in pockets of those areas as well. We have, we have some work to do. Right. Okay. Loads of interesting stuff. I'm looking forward to, to getting into all of this. Let's bring uh, Simon Devoudi into it now. Um, and you're, you're Chair of Town Planning and Co-Director of the Newcastle University Centre of Researching Cities. Uh, you've got an impressively long list of bodies that you're, you're a, a member of and a fellow of. Um, a, a really busy person involved across all the, the aspects of this. Simon, give us a, a bit of an idea of what your, your principal interests are. Well, thank you, Rob. And can I just echo what Kelly said in terms of, um, first of all, having me on this post podcast and the invitation, but also generally congratulations to the RTPI who is actually producing these podcasts. And I agree with Kelly. It's, it's a very good way of communicating some of these ideas and exchanging sort of knowledge and know-how across the world about how planning can play um, a kind of its role in tackling climate change. Um, I don't want to bore you and waste our times talking about me. Um, I am, uh, as you said, I hold the. I am the sixth holder of the chair of town planning at Newcastle University, and I am a fellow of the RTPI uh, and, and a fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences. And I, in uh, many years ago, I uh, used to be the president of the Association of European Schools of Planning, which is primarily a European association, but our annual conferences are uh, truly international. Um, and uh, yes, I wear a number of hats, uh, one of which that is maybe more relevant is that I sit on a social science expert group for the Department of Environment and, uh, and, and Rural Affairs, uh, DEFRA, um, Food and Rural Affairs. And I suppose these are the these are the, the part of the work that I do, which probably is more relevant to our discussion. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's fair to say you know what you're talking about. And another interesting element is that you originally trained as an architect. And we may well come back to that as well, because that's quite an interesting path that you've taken. Planning for tomorrow's environment. Produced by Content with Purpose in partnership with the Royal Town Planning Institute. This episode is sponsored by the Centre for Sustainable Planning and Environments at UE Bristol. 
UE Bristol Centre for Sustainable Planning and Environments aims to develop an understanding of how to achieve healthy, resilient, sustainable and smart places in the context of climate and ecological emergencies. You can learn more about their work on our digital series website, planningfortomorrow.rtpi.org.uk. Planning for Tomorrow's Environment, produced by Content with Purpose in partnership with the Royal Town Planning Institute. So we're talking about looking at, at, at global lessons that, that perhaps the UK can learn. From your perspective, what are the kind of the key global lessons that the, the UK should be learning? I think if I just if if I want to just summarize the key lesson, well, let me start from saying that we know that climate change is affecting everybody, is affecting every people and places and the environment across the world. But the the point is that um, and 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 I suppose um, in many places, and Kelly touched upon that, in in many places, planning is considered as an important area of public policy in tackling climate change, in reducing carbon emissions, and in also sort of adapting places to changes that are already locked in. But having said that, we know that there are differences in in that sort of local context. So the differences are, um, first of all, different countries are on different trajectories in terms of their emission and in terms of their development, and their aspirations are different. And secondly, there are differences in the planning systems across the world. And those differences are to do with the scope of planning, its legal status, its resources, its skills, policy instruments, etc., etc. So I suppose the first thing to remember is that any transfer, if you like, of planning policies or practices from one place to another has to be done with a very sound and deep understanding of local context. I think that's exactly. that's maybe the first thing that we always need to bear in mind. But having said that, um, there are still, I mean, we can still learn from other countries. And more than that, we can be inspired by the initiatives that are happening in other countries. And that's let's let's dig into into that then, because many of the the parts of the world that are experiencing the greatest population growth, so uh, parts of India, Asia, Africa, are also some of the parts of the world that are most affected by climate change. Um, and so, if you're building large new areas of uh, urbanisation in those areas that are likely to be affected. This is <laughs> right at the forefront of all the kind of lessons we should be learning and what planners should be thinking about trying to mitigate the worst impacts of climate change. I mean, you're absolutely right. I suppose um, uh, some of those countries and places that you just mentioned are probably um, facing the biggest challenges. And and we know that we talk about sort of just transition and the issues around climate justice which obviously uh, adds to the discussion that we are having in terms of many of these countries are not considering themselves as being responsible for the emissions uh, that have been happening after um, industrialization, but they are suffering probably um, most from the impact of climate change. So there are those issues also to think through. In terms of but in terms of learning and uh, from other places and uh, examples, um, I was going to talk about actually 
something that I know a little bit more about, I've read about it and know about it, is a, is, is a city in Germany. And in terms of learning from how they, they have uh, actually, um, they are sort of tackling problems of climate, with climate change. Okay. And so if, if, I mean, I'm happy to talk about that, but if you want to maybe bring Kelly in to talk about Another example. Okay, well, we'll we'll return to Germany in a second. Then, so Kelly, let's because talking about the the impact on those uh, developing countries and actually wanting to make sure that rapid urbanisation is carried out in a controlled way. You don't just end up with shanty towns pinging up uh, alongside rivers, kind of thing. Um, the, the Commonwealth is actually quite actively involved in trying to help out in that sort of scenario, isn't it? Mm-hmm, absolutely. I, you know, to your question about, you know, what does the UK need to know? Well, you know, our time is now. You know, we've been talking about climate change and sustainable development, um, you know, since the 1970s. And it was sort of something that was off in the future. There were efforts, I think, to recognize maybe more balanced development. But I think this is really the first time there's this collective consciousness <laughs> across the Commonwealth and across the globe that uh, we need to we need to change the way we plan. You know, we need to change our economics. We need to change, you know, our, our economies, you know, and we need to, quite frankly, be um, more green and how we develop and, and how we how we sustain our lives, um, preserving water systems and agriculture and, you know, environmentally, you know, sustainable methods in, in all practices that we follow from manufacturing and so forth. So, um What's unique is that, um, you know, international governments like like the United Nations recognize that. We've got um, the Sustainable Development Goals, which I mentioned earlier, you know, with the 17 different goals and recognizing the intersectionality, you know, between poverty and gender equity and water via, like, the oceans and land, you know, and um, sustainable communities, you know, is all kind of interconnected. And so um, we have within... The, the, the Commonwealth Association of Planners, um, an initiative we've partnered with the Prince's Foundation, Commonwealth Local Government Forum, Commonwealth Association of Architects, as well as the uh, Association of Commonwealth Universities, um, around a call to action on sustainable urbanization. We had the good fortune in June of attending the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in Kigali, Rwanda, and following out of that meeting was a declaration towards sustainable urbanisation. Well, what does that mean in pragmatic terms then? Because, you know, we hear that there are various cops that have been happening towards, you know, climate change or biodiversity, and making these announcements is, is one thing, but actually getting stuff to happen on the ground is often something else again, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, now we're talking about it. I think some of these initiatives were happening, you know, we've got the Paris Accord, you know, the 2030 Sustainable Agenda. I think what's really changed is that, I like Simmons had said, where every single person is experiencing the impact of climate change in some way. It's not something that's out in the future now. It's here. And there's a recognition that um, settlements, you know, territorial and urban community settlements um, are a place where CO2 emissions um, are generated in in substantial forms, whether it's from industry or it's the built form. 70% of all um, CO2 emissions comes from cities. 
um, and 40% comes from buildings alone. Well, there's a substantial portion of our world and the Commonwealth, if we, we focus there specifically, that doesn't that don't even have building regulations. Like the U, the Europe is actually quite advanced in, uh, in some of its uh, requirements for building codes and um, uh, reducing emissions, whether it's from heating, ventilation, air conditioning systems um, to heat recovery, like heat recovery um, or solar panels or water redistribution for gray water, you know, those kinds of really tangible aspects, reuse of existing material, um, you know, you, you can go on from there, right? They, they, they are, those are completely absent in some areas. So when climate disasters, you know, significant climate events happen and there's disaster, the infrastructure can't support that. Okay, so Simon, let's bring you back into here. And you would, you mentioned Germany, and you've got sort of specific knowledge around a town in Germany because the kind of lessons the UK needs to be drawing are probably, yeah, I don't know. I guess as a developed economy, we're going to learn more from other economies that are already developed than perhaps the the, the less developed economies. Is that fair? Uh, uh, no, I, I don't think it's fair. Actually, no. I think we can learn from everywhere. Um, and in fact, one of my one of the examples that I wanted to talk about, maybe in a different context, was from. Uh, actually, Sierra Leone, which is West Africa, and I wanted to talk to you about a particular initiative. But going back to, um, you know, the sort of global north developed countries, um, yes, I think there are, you know, there are lots of interesting stuff happening across Europe that we can learn from. But as I said, certainly we are not limited to that. We can learn from many, many other countries across the world. And uh, some of them are actually probably doing lots of pioneering stuff that uh, well ahead of maybe the so-called developed countries. So you you mentioned the the town in Germany. Yes, uh, let's let's talk about that. Let's talk about that because that's that's because because that example in uh, this what the stuff they're doing maybe is not so new, but how they do it is the point that I really want to make. So let's go back there. It is the city of Heidelberg. And there is there is a, a massive piece of land, about 100 hectare of it, Brownfield sites, which is a, a place called Bernstadt. And the regeneration of Bernstadt started, I think, back in 2010. The site was earmarked for mixed-use development and to become home to something around six to 7,000 Residents. So we're talking about a really major regeneration site. A whole new town. A whole new town, absolutely. Um, Heidelberg's master plan aimed to cut carbon emission by 95% and make the city almost 100% resilient to climate change impacts by 2050. So these are really ambitious targets. And have they and come anywhere the site, near meeting them? And when the site when the site came up came up, this particular site, Bernstadt, if I pronounce it correctly, they said, okay, let's implement. Let's see how we can achieve it in this new development. And they went about doing it. The, the scheme is finished. It was supposed to be finished by 2022, so it's done, completed. And what they did, they applied, you probably all have heard of, the passive house standard to all buildings, okay? Mm-hmm. And I don't want to go into a lot of detail about passive house 
people know about it. The entire uh, building is airtight. Its envelope is kind of insulated thermally, triple glazed windows, and so on and so forth. And in terms of transport, uh, the site is near railway station. They extended the metro line to serve the site. They created three and a half kilometers of cycle path, created one and a half kilometers of public path on railways. Again, this used railway sidings. Um, the energy that is um, supplied comes from a combined heat and power step plant, which is burning wood chip. Um, then in terms of adaptation, something like 60-70% of uh, buildings have green roof. They have water retention basins to reduce the risk of flooding, so on and so forth. And um, But the point, okay, so they are doing all of these things. So they've achieved really significant targets in terms of emissions and in terms of adaptation. But the real issue is, how did they do it? How the planners in Heidelberg achieved such ambitious target? Come on then, tell us. How did they do it? Well, first of all, they knew that if they want to rely entirely on private sector developers, they are not going to achieve passive house standards, especially because that standard is not part of German law, okay? So mm-hmm. instead of instead of um, selling this, this site to the highest bidder, they decided to develop, they, they, to, they decided to set up their own company. So the city council decided to set up its own development company. Their shareholders are the municipal housing corporation, municipal city bank, and the regional bank. So they basically prepared the site, then sold it to private developers to build it. But then within the sale contract, they included all the requirements, all the standards that I was just talking about. So it's a very tightly regulated scenario it's right a, from the very it's, very it's not about regulation because we have regulation coming out of our you know ears. It's about the municipality actually being a shareholder in owning the land, be, having the development company, and then using that to make sure that the standards that they are putting in their plans are actually implemented. Okay, Kelly, does that sound like the kind of a system that is used in a variety of places around the world, or is that a unique kind of standout situation? Oh, I think it's... uh, um, Samin had said earlier, you know, local context really matters. Um, And uh, both in terms of the geography, you know, and what resources are available, but also in terms of the... um, the governance of the community. So I would say, yes, there are really excellent examples and pockets um, of that type of uh, work happening as best case kind of uh, leading examples. I was, um, when you were talking, I was thinking in Canada from, uh, we are, we are incentivizing the private development um, in a sense that lots of um, grants 
and development initiatives are happening for passive or net zero um, projects, private and or, you know, different ownership models that are available. Rob, I wanted to touch on, you asked earlier a couple things about the air, uh, both about, you know, what's happening on the ground. How does, why does, how does COP, you know, 27 or Chagam, you know, matter? And I, I, you know, I, I sort of only briefly touched on, it. I wanted to come back, you know, part of how do we change human behavior? <laughs> well, there, first of all, there has to be an awareness of a need to change, mm-hmm. you know, and I, what, what I was kind of saying earlier is I, I do have this you know, I can see that this collective awareness is growing, you know, that we need to change. And as a result, um, policies are changing at the international, national, you know, state, municipal level. Um, these kinds of declarations give um, national governments or state governments, you know, in all continents, um, sort of a pathway to support these types of initiatives that, you know, whether it's in Germany or it's in Canada or if it's in Kenya or if it's in Sierra Leone, because I want to bridge to one of those, you know, too. Um, and so there's funding that comes with that and there's support, whether it's support from, uh, you know, any of the international development agencies, some of the large um, uh, funders and institutes um, for development, you know, they come in and they do sort of on the ground local context. And it and more than anything now, what we're working to bring is um, supports to communities like Sierra Leone, you know, or in Bangladesh and Dhaka or other areas that are experiencing um, rapid urbanization and um, extreme weather events. And they have the least, um, like I mentioned earlier, regulatory frameworks, but they also don't have planners or architects or engineers, you know, or land surface surveyors even in their country or accredited planning programs or professional programs. So something that the Commonwealth Association of Par- uh, Planners is working in partnership with the Commonwealth Sustainable Cities Initiative, which I mentioned earlier on that declaration, mm-hmm. is to help to identify those gaps. We've done two surveys. We're working on another now. And then we take that information to those heads of states and governments to help them to see where the resources are. But you can't just build a profession and an infrastructure overnight. You have to look at the local context. So we've been um, working on with the Princess Foundation leading um, in terms of the capacity piece, a rapid planning toolkit on the ground. And Sierra Leone is one of about five different places we've taken this toolkit. And I'm really curious to hear about what Simin is working on in Sierra Leone. So I'll pause there. Okay. Simin, I know you wanted to mention uh, Sierra Leone. Yes, I wanted to, but can I just first of all say that I'm not working in any of these places. I just, I, I have read about them. Okay. So it's not my knowledge is not kind of first-hand knowledge, if you like. You're an academic. But, You're in Newcastle. Yeah, That's exactly. Right. We'll you see granted. the books behind me. Yeah, I'm just, <laughs> I just read this stuff. Yeah. But but see, yeah, somehow we, we keep talking about... So, and I read something about Sierra Leone, which really caught my imagination in terms of what... what the, the, kind of, the kind of thinking outside the box example of how we can achieve certain things... In, in a very unconventional, if you like, way. And this is obviously Freetown, the capital of the country. And uh, this is actually against the backdrop of uh, population rise and urbanization drop that you mentioned earlier. You know, they are facing serious issues and they are moving into the forest, basically clearing up the forest. So in a way, they, they are trying to find a way of, you know, compensating that problem. And the city council uh, came up with a plan to plant 
one million trees. You know, again, maybe not so novel. You know, London is trying to um, plant lots of trees. But the way they do it is the interesting part because they call it sort of um, self-financing urban reforestation. So the way the system works is the bit that we can learn from. The whole project is co-designed and co-managed by local communities. And it benefits people who plant the trees directly. Because so, so here we bring the kind of issues around environment and social kind of together. How? Um, community-based growers, tree planters, they are using a, um, a technology, digital technology, a tree tracker app. And, and then they create a unique, what you may call a kind of a geotag record or an ID for the plant that they are, uh, for the tree that they are planting. And that ID is used to make sure that the tree is um, looked after, maintained, you know, watered and survived. And all of these things feed back into a system of monitoring. The work they do, obviously, is voluntary, but the growers are remunerated for their efforts. And they get paid by this another mobile money system, which is kind of some kind of micropayments. So, they get- so what I'm what I'm wanting to sort of get to the bottom of them with with all of these things is is how these things can actually be applied in the UK because if we go back to the Germany situation, yeah. I know that planners listening to this will be thinking to themselves, I would love the opportunity to get a hundred hectares of brownfield site that is properly owned and managed by the local authority, so that we can actually put a plan into operation. The chances of getting that to happen in the UK are very slim because there's so much private ownership and there's so much vested interest, yeah. it's really difficult to actually make these big plans ever come together. Is, yeah, that, is it, that the case? Yes, it is the case, but it didn't used to be like that. It didn't used to be in this way. We we had Newtown Development Corporation. We, you know, Development Corporation is still a planning mechanism which is available. The metro mayors are going to use them. So there are ways of establishing, giving local authorities the power and the resources to do this, to to assemble land. Development corporations used to assemble land, reclaim it, clean it, prepare it, and then sell it to the developers to develop according to a particular master plan. So here it could be according to a very master plan which puts in a lot of climate change friendly, if you like, regulations and requirements. So it can be done. The lesson is that it can be done. And that's political will makes that happen, isn't it? Political will is the the first and the most important driver of it. Kelly, you're in the heart of talking with the Canadian government. You're talking to ministers on a regular basis. At the senior level where you are, do they get it? Are they pushing for these kind of things to actually be put in, be put in place there? Yeah, yes. Um, 
Absolutely. Because what's happening here in Canada is that we've made some commitments to be net zero by 2050. And so that's a very ambitious goal, because if you think of the 150 years it's taken us to develop to where we are, we're still a, a young um, country. Um, essentially, all of those buildings that have been constructed need to be retrofitted to be net um, zero. Even our own house in 1926, poor man's craftsman home, for example, we're working on it right now. It's going to cost us about $100,000, you know, to put a heat pump and to put the solar and re-insulate the house and, you know, and, and still keep that beautiful character that we have. And, and what's are you happening, having though, to do that out of your pocket or are there government grants available to help you? Yeah, both the state government, like the Canadian government and the municipal government. I was going to say we're, the, the the empowerment needs to happen really locally, you know, and the financial resources available to municipalities and the state kind of governments facilitating that so that those local solutions can happen. But yes, there this is an incentive that you can upgrade your home and it goes on your taxes, so you don't have to pay out of pocket. Um, and then the federal government has a, you know, a a grant that you don't have to pay back if you can reduce your energy consumption by 50%. But I don't want to miss the most important point, though, about, you know, yes, you know, we've got some really neat kind of cooperative models here and government-owned models and, and around the world. But privatization, private models are also working because the cost of the traditional energy supply, it's too cost prohibitive. It's becoming too cost prohibitive. And that's what's incentivizing private industry, both, like I mentioned, manufacturers and, um, you know, uh, companies that businesses, suppliers, um, uh, developers to look to alternative solutions is because the mechanisms that existed five years ago um, to cheaply construct something or to an inefficient house or whatever, th it's too costly to do that. And in the UK context, which you were asking about from a planning perspective, it's you do need the will of the local government, um, but, um, but you need the state government to kind of put those regulations in place to say for that uniformity, I guess, you know, an applica applicability um, to say, you know, we're going to hit these targets, we're going to put the incentives in place. And if you don't conform, these are the costs. And those are in developed countries, but in areas that are, don't have the same developed economies. And Samin had talked about this earlier, there does need to be supports to support them because they don't have the financial resources. Okay. So th let, let's put this into the context then of, of the UK needs to learn lessons from various parts of the world. What's the key bits of advice you would give to the UK government and to us as the people um, to put pressure on them. What do we actually need to do to make these processes that are actually going to benefit the planning process and benefit all of us to actually happen? Kelly? It's a big well, question, I, isn't it? <laughs> well, I, I, you know, absolutely. I, I think, though, the UK, you know, has some restrict, you know, it really comes down to how do you change human behavior and the more severe the, the climate um, uh, uh, implications are, you know, and the impact on the insurance and rebuilding infrastructure, water, sewer, you know, uh, dikes, um, canals, um, you know, the, the rising water levels that, you know, at, from heat, like it, it, that I think is what is already kind of creating this tipping point. Like, from my standpoint, and I certainly welcome you to, to advise me, I, I don't think there's really too many countries, especially not the UK, that are sitting idle and not 
trying to and acting on this. I think we're literally trying to turn around the Titanic. You know, we're on a trajectory and we have to fundamentally accept that we need to change. We need to embrace technology. Um, there needs to be really holistic plans. Uh, in some ways, we have to get out of the way. You know, um, I'd say to the UK, if there's innovation, uh, support those innovations. Where there's lack of action, an initiative, put your energy there um, and collect the data and, and report back to the commitments internationally. You know, be a leader. The UK has been a leader for years in a be lot a of leader. innovations, right? Be like, a leader. Okay. Take so, a leader. Simin, yeah. I mean, you, you've got an international perspective on, on planning in terms of how it's implemented and how it's supported. If you were marking the UK's homework, what score would you give it at the moment? I don't want to give a figure to that. And and especially, I don't want to disrespect my colleagues who work in planning practice for, for all the efforts that they are putting in day in and day out to do what is uh, expected from them. Instead, I think... You, you mentioned what would be your message to the UK government. I'd like to, I'd like to sort of ask something of our government. And that is that we keep talking about the pivotal role that planning can play in tackling climate change. If that is the expectation, the planning system needs to be adequately resourced. It has to be highly valued. And it has to work within the context of a national consistency of national policy. And we have to know that tackling, if you are going to tackle serious about tackling climate change, we have to be consistently prioritizing climate emergency over some other policies, especially over fossil fuel, sort of so-called energy security. So we cannot have, on the one half, on the one hand, the world first climate act of 2008 leading everywhere else in actually putting in place that act on the one hand, and on the other hand, expect planners to accept coal mining planning applications or to go for shale gas fracking. These are mixed messaging. And it makes the job of planners very, very difficult. Plus the fact that, you know, constant reform of the planning system is not helpful either. So if we are putting so much sort of responsibility on planning system to deliver all of these policy goals and policy agendas, we've got to give them what they need, which is the resource um, value political support that you mentioned earlier, and consistent national policy so that they can work within all of those, within that sort of supportive environment and show. But there is a message to planners themselves. And the message to planners is that climate change is happening now at this moment. And there is no way that we can constantly push the decisions, you know, to a, some kind of a perpetually postponed future. We have to act here and now. And to do that, we need to engage with communities and try to negotiate around the institutional constraint that planners are working at. And maybe more importantly than anything else, uh, pl planners are good at that. They need to use their imagination and creativity and to try okay. to come up 
with different ways of doing things than what we do today. Now, we'll have to, unfortunately, sort of start to bring things to a, to a close. So what I really want to ask both of you is to, is to outline what the one key message you want somebody listening to this podcast today to take away with them. They might be working in a planning office somewhere in the UK. Uh, they might be a government minister. You never know. But what's the one key message that you want them to take away? Kelly Moore. I'd say that that our time is now. I I, I think Samin, you did a, a beautiful job summarizing all of those aspects. But um, you know, climate change doesn't know geopolitical boundaries. Doesn't know one country from the next. It, um, and we all have to act together. And we have to think local. We need to you know the whole kind of think uh, think global, act kind of local. <laughs> you know, it's it's sort of that same kind of concept that applies here. And um, to be brave, um, uh, recognizing that the collective actions of all of us will impact our future. And, um, and to recognize that we are, we do know how to do it. We just need to be courageous and taking the steps forward now. And I do think the technology is, is there and, and to recognize that we have to work in house, but we also have to look outside and support other countries that um, don't have all the resources, but are impacted by trying to, um, create the same quality of life we have in, in, in places like the UK and Canada and help them to not make the same mistakes that we have and to get to a better, maybe leapfrog uh, quality of life and more sustainable development planning approach than we did uh, previous. Right, okay. And, and Simon, what, what's the, the key message that you want people to take away? I, I made quite a few points around these kind of messages but I think, uh, yeah, agree with Kelly. Act, act now, act here, act as you can. Yeah, I think it's the message, really. And there is, you know, we, we, it, we, we cannot constantly wait for something to happen in order for us to do something. And, 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 and people, and by doing things, actually, you can mobilize hope, which in itself is, is, is a massive driving force for people to actually, you know, stand up and say, Here's how I'm going to make things make a different way, different sort of things as I than than what I usually do. So I suppose it is it is about the the urgency of action, which is the key message really. Mobilizing hope, I think that's a really important message. Um, Simin uh, Davudi and Kelly Moore, both of you, thank you ever so much for being with us today. It's been fan- a fascinating conversation, really enjoyable. All sorts of uh, great insights that we've had there. In our next episode, we're going to be exploring the value of collaboration with Paul Seddon, who's Director of Planning and Regeneration at Nottingham City Council, and Rachel Skinner, CBE, who's Executive Director at WSP, which is one of the world's leading engineering professional services consulting firms. If you've missed any of the other podcasts in our series, you can, of course, catch up by searching online for the RTPI Planning for Tomorrow's Environment, where you will also find a whole bunch of useful materials, including a film documentary and video clips that you can use to inform and inspire your colleagues and indeed the next generation of planners. Because we all want to create a world for our children and grandchildren that's healthy, socially inclusive, environmentally sustainable, beautiful even. That's something worth planning for, isn't it? Thanks for listening. I'm Rob Smith, and this has been a Content with Purpose production. Thanks once again to the sponsor of this episode, the Centre for Sustainable Planning and Environments at UE Bristol. 
You can read, watch and learn more about their work and about the full Planning for Tomorrow's Environment digital series by going to planningfortomorrow.rtpi.org.uk. And don't forget to visit contentwithpurpose.co.uk or find us on social to check out more of our podcast collaborations.